This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, about 10 years ago, uh, I was introduced to a new word in my vocabulary. And that word was vulnerability. Ryan, who was our lead pastor at the time, he uh, invited me in for a drink, and he asked me how I was doing, and I said, not great. He goes, yeah, I kind of figured that. He goes, why is that? I hinted at a couple things that were weighing on me. One was a a job change I was considering at at Nokia. The other other was two couples that had left our small group recently, And, and I couldn't figure out what I did wrong. And I was even beginning to wonder if maybe I wasn't fit to be a small group leader, yet alone to be an elder. And he shared um, a bit more of the story that I wasn't aware of and why they they didn't didn't least leave our small group. They actually left our church, and and it had nothing to do with me. And then he said something that I'll, I'll remember this forever. He said, I've known you for how many years now? And it was six, seven years by this point. And he goes, I still don't know you. He says, you're like kryptonite to me. You won't let me in. I don't think you're letting anybody in. And he said, here's the thing. You're only going to be so effective as a pastor if you can't learn to be vulnerable and let others in. And he suggested two things. He said, I, I, think, I think you struggle with being vulnerable. And I think you should begin talking to someone about why that is, allowing them to help you. And he gave me the info for a therapist. His name is Scott. And, uh, you know, he was right. I had had mastered the art of the front front porch conversation, right? Inviting you up, giving you a drink, making you feel welcome and at home, but never beyond that. Never inviting you inside through the front door and into the living room. See, I had mastered transparency, but I avoided vulnerability. And those couldn't be any further from each other. They couldn't be any more different. Transparency is sharing something you don't know about me. Uh, if you're new, if you're a guest with us, just so uh, to share a few things. Um, I, I grew up on a farm in Iowa. Yeah, I know, we've heard that one. I spent 17 years at Motorola before leaving to come into ministry. And even back at this time, I was fine talking about how my parents were going through a divorce. That was all fine to talk about. That was me being transparent. Vulnerability, though, is sharing something I don't want you to know about me. It's sharing something that I would rather be kept secret. It's I would rather run and hide under this keyboard right now than tell you that. so I went home that night, and I told my wife, Jill, and you know what her response was? I think everyone should probably go see a therapist. I married up. That next week, I began a rather intense journey with my therapist, Scott, exploring why it was that I struggled with being vulnerable, uncovering the, the lies that I believed, the secrets that I was hiding and protecting, and beginning ever so slowly to allow people through the front door and and into the living room of my life because that is where true belonging and connection take place, isn't it? 
And so as we continue our series, Distinctives, this morning, looking at eight distinctive character traits that are true of us, both individually as followers of Christ and collectively as the body of Christ, we're going to turn to a passage written uh, not just by the Apostle John, but, but by Pastor John. And we're going to see the importance of vulnerability. Courageously opening ourselves, not only to God, but to one another in a way that allows us to be truly seen, fully known, and genuinely loved. And we're going to do this first by seeing who God is, and then seeing how God's character invites vulnerability. And then we're going to close by seeing how we together can go about creating a culture of vulnerability. Sound good? It's not a lot of laughs today, but that's okay. Get one out right now. That was a good one. That was a good one. So Pastor John, he begins by describing who God is. And he says that, that God is light. I wanted two descriptions. God is light later in chapter 4. God is love. He says God is light. And in him is no darkness at all whatsoever. And he's like, I'm not saying anything new here, guys. He's simply sharing the message that he and the other apostles had heard from Jesus. Proclaiming what he'd heard. Sharing what he had received. But let's pause for a second. What does that mean, that God is light? Like, God is light? God is bright light shining in my face? God is the sun? Well, for one, we know I cannot see right now because I stared directly into that spotlight. Don't do that. Uh, We know, for one, that light is good, isn't it? Light is good. Uh, The story of creation, it begins by saying that in the beginning, what covered the face of the earth? Darkness. And so God spoke, and he said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, separating light from the darkness. Light is good. We also see in Scripture that light is safe. David, he says in Psalm 27, that the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? Light is good and safe. But light also represents God's presence among his people. Right, God uh, in, in the burning bush Speaking to Moses in Exodus 3, where God is a pillar of fire going before his people in the wilderness in Exodus 13. God, light represents God's presence and God's holiness. The psalmist saying in Psalm 104, you God, you are clothed with splendor, splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as a garment. And that's why John, he begins his gospel saying that the true light, the light that gives light to everyone, it was coming into the world. Right, he's describing the incarnation of this divine light in Jesus, declaring himself to be the light of the world. A light that John says shines in the darkness, a light that the darkness has not and will not ever overcome. Jesus saying that whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. When John says God is light, that is the message he is referring to, a message that he heard from Jesus, a message that reminds us of who God is, reminding us of the truth of God's character and how to live in response to who God is. And so he goes on to to confront and correct three claims that the churches that he was overseeing were making. And he's not necessarily correcting the words they were saying, but the way that they were living. 
And he does this through a series of three pair of contrasting if-then statements, essentially saying, uh, if this bad thing is true, then this other bad thing is true. But, but if this good thing is true, which it is, then this other good thing is also true. And so the first claim that he confronts, his first if-then statement, he says in verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But, and here comes the contrasting if then in verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, to clarify, he's not talking about walking in literal darkness. Um, it's not like vampires who have to avoid the sunlight uh, before they burn or die, or like the one vampire that all of a sudden turns into diamonds and shines. Yes, I watched in Red Twilight. See, this is how we practice vulnerability. <laughs> Now, walking was a common Jewish metaphor for the way that we live. And they were, they were living their lives in the darkness and the shadows, meaning two things. Meaning that, one, they were embracing a life of sin. They were living in a way that was counter to the way God had created them and called them to live. But not only that, they were hiding their sin, thinking that they were, they were going to get away with it. They, just, they kept it secret. They kept it unseen in the darkness. And what John is saying is that this way of living is entirely incompatible with fellowship with God. Right? That you cannot have fellowship with God and at the same time walk in darkness, embracing a life of sin and hiding your sin. He says it's a lie to think that you can get away with this because you are not practicing the truth. You are not living in light of God's truth, the truth. And so he's warning them here of the danger that they're in, warning them of the danger of the darkness because of what sin and shame can do. And he gives three warnings here in these opening verses. Number one is that sin separates you from God and from each other, doesn't it? Sin separates you from God and each other. Sin severs both of those relationships. Prophet Isaiah, he, uh, in speaking to the people of Israel, writes, Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. All right? Sin separates you from God, creating this, this insurmountable barrier that exists between you and God, preventing you from seeing his face. Sin digs uh, this, this impassable cavern between you and, and God. Preventing you from abiding in his presence. But sin not only separates us from God, it separates us from each other. And the hurt that we inflict on each other, it, it, it pushes us further and further away, isolating us until we feel left all alone. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, um, somebody told me today that they have a bingo card. And on that bingo card is that I'm going to quote Bonhoeffer. Bingo. He writes, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. And the more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it. And the more disastrous is his isolation. But sin's not content with isolation. You remember that kid's book, and the bear wants more? Sin wants more. 
He goes on to say that, that sin wants to remain unknown. It wants to remain hidden. And so the second warning that we see here is that sin leads you out of the light and into the darkness. Right? It leads you out of, of the light and back into the dark corners of your life and of your world. Bonhoeffer goes on to say that sin shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, sin poisons the whole being of a person. Sin poisons our mind. Sin distorts our thoughts. Sin twists the truth, drawing us ever more into the dark, ever further and further away from God. And this, this drift is so slow that we almost don't notice it. Right? It's not like when you uh, flip the light switch off at night and bam, it's all of a sudden dark. No, this, this is more like the slow, steady descent into the pitch black depth of a cave where light ceases to exist. And once sin has drawn you into the darkness, the third warning is that shame keeps you hiding in the darkness. Shame keeps you hiding in the darkness, trapped, nowhere to go. You're scared, you're lost and alone. And the only thing that we fear more than the darkness is someone finding out what we've been hiding in the darkness. And that's exactly what we see in the beginning of Scripture, isn't it? I mentioned it's wedding weekend. After the very first wedding, uh, it says the man and his wife, they were both naked. And they, they were both completely vulnerable with each other. They, they were truly seen. They were fully known. They were genuinely loved by each other. And, and they, it says they were not ashamed. They, they felt no shame. Rather than keeping each other on, on the front porch, so to speak, they welcomed each other into the most intimate places of their home, of their inner being. But when we turn the page from Genesis 2 to Genesis 3, after listening to the lies of the serpent and, and, and now living in a way contrary to the way God had created them to live and called them to live, it says that their eyes were opened. And what they now saw was that they had been separated from God and from each other. Knowing that they were naked, they were drawn into the darkness, overcome with shame that kept them hiding in the darkness. Hiding from each other, it says, sewing fig leaves and making loincloths. Hiding from God, it says, when they heard him walking in the cool of the day, they hid from his presence among the trees. They no longer believed that the light was good. They no longer believed that the light was safe. That's exactly what John wrote in his gospel in chapter 3. That everyone who does evil hates the light and refuses to step into the light. Why? Because they're afraid of their sin being exposed. They're afraid of the light shining in what they've hidden in the darkness. And so we hide, don't we? We hide by wearing masks portraying this false sense of self that everything's okay, this, this Instagram-like mask. We wear a mask so that we are never truly seen, never fully known. We hide by building these massive closets. We are all general contractors building massive closets, hiding everything that we can, every emotion, every thought, every sin. We hide it in a closet but we not only hide what we've done, we also hide what's been done to us, don't we? 
hiding how the sin of others has impacted us, how it has scarred us, hiding the scars we carry, hiding the scars on our body, hiding the scars on our heart and our minds. We hide it all. That's not all we hide. Again, we build big closets. We wear complex masks because sin has infected so much more than just what we do and don't do and what has been done to us. Now, sin also impacts the way that we think and the way that we feel, doesn't it? It impacts our thoughts and desires so that we desire things that are contrary to the way God has created and called us to live, don't we? And some of those contrary desires, some of those are easy to share with others. Some of those the church views as acceptable struggles, as understandable desires, and they're allowed to remain in the open. They're allowed to remain in the light, but others have been deemed unacceptable by the church with no attempt whatsoever to understand. And when that's your story, you feel attacked by the people that were supposed to provide a space that was good and safe for you. You feel attacked by the church. And you feel forced into the darkness, unable to openly share the thoughts that enter your mind, the desires that enter your heart. You are afraid, and so you hide. And you not only end up hiding what you think and what you feel, you end up hiding who you are, don't you? Sin impacts us, but it also And it impacts all of creation. There is nothing untouched by sin, including our physical bodies. Sometimes in ways that you would prefer others not know. And part of the reason is because you're afraid of what they might say, of how they might respond, of others attempting to find a silver lining in the midst of your suffering. So often their words being more hurtful than helpful. Some wondering what it is that you did to deserve the suffering you're experiencing, only adding more and more shame to the shame you're already feeling. And I tell you, I didn't have to journey very far back into my story with Scott to find the first of many things that I was hiding. Just seven years earlier, Jill and I, we lost our first child. And we chose to experience that pain in near total isolation, hiding our suffering from others. And we did it in part, to be honest, because we didn't want anybody's pithy platitudes or silver linings. I didn't want to hear that it would all be okay and that it was actually probably for the best. I didn't want to hear that our child was with God and there was now an angel looking down on us. I didn't want to hear that we would one day have another and that we should just be grateful for what we have. I didn't want to hear any of that. And to be clear, anyone who's had a miscarriage doesn't want to hear any of that. They want your presence, not your words. But I also didn't want to be known as the couple who lost a baby. I didn't want that to be our identity. I had a cousin who, I remember, my mom always referred to her as that. And as a little kid about the age of David, that stuck with me. And I didn't want that for us. And so we hid. 
We hid what happened in a closet. We hid what we were feeling behind a mask. Never allowing anyone through the front door, definitely not into the living room because we felt safe, isolated, and alone. And that's what shame does. It causes us to hide. Not only hiding what we've done, but hiding who we are. Hiding because we're afraid. We're afraid you might find out who we really are. Afraid you might find out what we've done. Afraid of what you might think. Afraid of what you might say. Afraid of what you might do. Afraid if, that, if they knew the real me, they'd probably run from me. That shame is an attack on our identity. Right? Now, it's different from guilt. Vulnerability is different from transparency. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is the feeling of having done something wrong. Shame is the feeling of being something wrong. There's something wrong with me. Believing the lie that you are not enough. Believing the lie that you are not worthy of being known and so we hide. Believing the lie that you are not worthy of being loved and so we isolate. Hiding from others, disconnecting from others. And all that does is deepens the shame. Ryan recommended a book to me this week called The Soul of Shame by Dr. Kurt Thompson. And he describes this, this shame spiral that we go in. And he says, we recognize early and often that shame tends to be self-reinforcing. When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us from our feeling and the gazes of the other, ironically, simultaneously reinforces the very shame we are attempting to avoid. Notably, we do not necessarily realize this to be happening. We're just trying to survive the moment. But indeed, this dance between hiding and feeling shame itself becomes a tightening of the noose. We feel shame, and then we feel shame for feeling shame. Shame begets itself. So what do we do? John says that if we would ever so courageously step out of the darkness and walk in the light as God is in the light, knowing that the light is good, knowing that the light is safe, knowing that God is holy and present with us, turning to God, returning to God, and allowing what was once hidden to be seen, not only do we have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another. That what was once severed is now restored. And not by anything that we did, but by everything that God did. By the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, he says, blood that forgives us of our sin, blood that removes our guilt, blood that cleanses our shame. Amen? But Pastor John, he's a loving pastor. He's a patient pastor. He knows, that's a lot to take in right there. It's a lot to take in because of how much we have hidden and how long we've hidden it. And he knows, he knows you need a bit more convincing to step out of the darkness and into the light. And so he, he confronts a second aspect of their claim. His second if then, he says in verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, and here comes the, the contrasting if then, but if we confess our sins, 
he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? To say that you have no sin, that sin has in no way impacted you, that is a lie. You are simply deceiving yourself. And deception's what happened in Genesis 3, wasn't it? That, that crafty little serpent, he slithered into the garden. Uh, now me, being afraid of snakes, I'm pretty sure if I was in Genesis 3, I'd have ran. That's not true. I would have stayed there. We all would have stayed there. But he slithered into the garden, doubting God and deceiving humanity, asking them, did God actually say that? Did he actually mean what you heard? Maybe you heard him wrong. Maybe, listen, hear me out here. Maybe instead of God giving you everything that is good, maybe God's actually withholding what is good. Maybe God's envious and jealous of you becoming like him. And we listened. We listened, and as a result, we've gone against God's word, what it is that he has spoken to us, and we've gone against God's will, what it is that he wants for us. Deceiving ourselves into thinking that the darkness is safe, that the darkness is good. We're deceived. We're deceived, and so we hide our sin, don't we? We hide our sin, covering it up. There's nothing to see here, folks. No one ever needs to know. No one will ever get hurt. We hide our sin. We also, um, we deceive ourselves by ignoring our sin. Right? We just don't think about it. It's not a big deal. We deceive ourselves by excusing our sin. It was a necessary evil. When is evil ever necessary? It needed to be done. There's a good reason for what I did. We excuse it. We deceive ourselves by justifying our sin. It was out of my control. There was nothing I could do. Besides, no one else got hurt. We deceive ourselves by redefining our sin. We twist the truth so that it's no longer sin. One that we do very frequently now is, is we redefine the sin of gossip into processing with others. Beat you to it, girl. We deceive ourselves by tolerating our sin, expecting others to be equally loving and accepting and inclusive of our sin. And then we embrace our sin in the end. It's now culturally acceptable. It is part of who I am. It is not sin for me, according to my truth. The thing is, there is absolutely no truth in any of that, John says. That is all deception, thinking that we know better than God. Creation usurping the creator. And what God wants, what Pastor John wants you to see is what God wants you to see. God just wants you to see your sin the way he sees it. Bringing it out into the darkness and into the light so that we can see it. So that we can verbalize it and acknowledge it, confessing our sins both to God and to one another. And as the light shines on our sin, we, we see it for what it is, which is rebellion against God. Seeking to be God. And as that light shines, and we see our sin for what it is, we, we feel remorse over our sin. And we repent of our sin. Turning from our sin and turning back to God. No longer cowering in fear, but knowing that God is forever faithful, faithful to forgive every sin 
confess, knowing there is no sin the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. Amen? There is no sin the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. Can you say that with me one more time? Because I really feel like we got to get that. There is no sin the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. But he's not done. He confronts their claim again from yet another perspective. His third and final if then. And he says in verse 10, he says, If we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. And his word is not in us. We make God a liar because ever since the original unraveling of creation, God has promised to restore that which has been broken. To undo the great undoing. The pages of scripture, they are filled with story after story after story that comprise one grand story of God redeeming his once very good creation. But that, that story and every story in it, every word that we claim to be the word of God is nothing but a lie if making God himself who spoke these words a liar if we say that we have not sinned. Because if there were no sin, there would be no need of a savior. What is the point of promising a Messiah if he was unneeded, if he was unnecessary? But our loving Pastor John, he he affectionately addressing his his little children, he loves them. And he's writing these things, he says, so that you may not sin, so that we might live in the way God created and called us to live. But... He also goes on to say that if anyone does sin, knowing we will sin, we will stumble, we will fall, that we have an advocate who stands with God the Father, standing in our place on our behalf, one who added humanity to his divinity, one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are, one who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness and condition, yet one who is entirely without sin in every way And that one, our advocate, is Jesus Christ, the righteous, John says. He is our atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. Meaning Jesus is two things as our atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation of our sin. Bearing God's wrath in our place on the cross, satisfying God's wrath, dying our death, paying our penalty. He did what was necessary for God, but he also did what was necessary for us and that he is not only our propitiation, he is our expiation. There will not be a quiz after this. Jesus loves you this I know because Pastor Ash said a couple of big words. He is our propitiation, satisfying God. He is our expiation, doing what we needed, which is forgiving our sin, removing our guilt and cleansing us of our shame. See, Jesus is the one who scaled that insurmountable barrier that our sin built. Jesus is the one who bridges the impassable chasm our sin dug, making a way for us back to God, restoring fellowship not only with God but with one another. But he's not only the atoning sacrifice for our sins, notice John says, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if it seems like John might be a bit of a universalist here, he is. But not in the way you think he is. Listen, just please don't go home and say, Ash said John's a universalist. 
He's a universalist in that the gospel knows absolutely no boundaries. It is not bound by racial, ethnic, or national boundaries, but is made available to all. Because he's also a universalist in believing that all are in need. All are impacted and infected by sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All are in need of a savior. All are in need of forgiveness and cleansing. And God, he, he is calling out to you in the darkness. He is inviting you out of the darkness and into the light. Light that is good and light that is safe. Allowing his light to shine on all that you have hidden, whatever the reason may be. Allowing his grace to remove your guilt, to forgive your sin, and to cleanse you of your shame. And that is why God's people were called to be a light to the nations. That is why we as followers of Jesus have been called to be a light to the world, letting the light of Christ shine before others so that they too might step out of the darkness and into the light and be truly seen and fully known and genuinely loved as we walk in the light, in the presence of his holiness of that light. So how do we do that? How do we, in this room, go about creating a culture of vulnerability? How do we create a safe space where people feel comfortable stepping out of the darkness and into the light, especially when they have been scarred so many times for doing that very thing? Well, one, it requires each and every one of us who call Redemption Our Church Home contributing to this. This is an all-hands-on-deck thing. That has been true each and every week of this series, and it will be for the next two weeks. It involves all of us who call redemption our church home contributing. But it also requires an immense amount of love and care and above all patience with each other. It requires time. And so I want to share six ways that we are going to go about creating a culture of vulnerability here at Redemption. Our unique expression of this distinctive. And number one is this initiate vulnerability. Initiate vulnerability. Here's what I mean by this. Someone needs to take that courageous first step out of the darkness and into the light. Modeling vulnerability for others. That means being the first to share when no one else will share. That means entrusting your story with others before they entrust their story with you. And that allows others to see slowly over time that this is a safe place to openly share, that the light is good. So we initiate vulnerability. Number two, we invite vulnerability. We invite vulnerability. We never, ever, ever impose vulnerability on others. Does that make sense? I, I got to do one of those all eyes up here. We never, ever impose vulnerability. Forcing it on others, expecting it of others. We only ever invite vulnerability. And we invite, not by making statements to them or about them, but by asking questions. Asking good questions. Knowing that some, some may not feel welcome to share, uh, uh, either based on past experiences, uh, the lack of familiarity with the group, or simply not wanting to unnecessarily burden others with their story. But they just might share if they're invited to share. And we invite vulnerability by creating 
a safe space where people feel comfortable sharing, which really goes back to a couple weeks ago and the distinctive of hospitality. We also create a safe space for sharing by being generous with our time, creating margin in our life, which goes back to generosity. And we invite vulnerability by not consuming the space, only ever being the one to tell our story, but by creating space for others to share. And a real practical way we can go about this, um, we're all prone to the question, how you doing? And what's the answer you get 105% of the time? Good, fine, okay, so apparently there's two iterations of it. It's the same bucket of answer. I'm gonna ask something, can we, can we stop asking that question unless we're actually ready to listen? Because when you ask, how you doing, just to be polite, just to make chit-chat, make small talk, people pick up on it. They recognize you don't really want to know. And rather than feeling seen and heard and loved, rather than being invited into vulnerability, it feels like they're being made out to be an inconvenience. Ask the question, how are you doing? But when you ask the question, have the margin in your life to be able to listen. Does that make sense? Initiate it, invite it. Number three, be caring, not curious. Right? Be caring, not curious. When you ask someone to share something that, that may very well be deeply personal for them, ask because you care. Do not ever ask because you're simply curious and just wondering. You can ask them about the score of the Iowa game. Yes, Iowa won yesterday. But if you're going to ask something deeply personal, don't ask it out of curiosity. Because what you end up doing is really just initiating a form of gossip rather than inviting vulnerability. Ask because you want to hear their story so that they are known. Ask because you want to enter into their story so that they are loved. And if you get, um, if you get asked a question, I'm going to flip the, 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 the coin here. If you're, you're asked a question and you're wondering, that's a personal question. I don't know if I'm ready to share that yet. An easy way to respond to that question you're not ready is to simply ask, why do you ask? Because it does two things. The curiosity seeker likely is just like, oh, I was just wondering. And you have no need to share that. On the other hand, it might be a way to invite vulnerability. I learned this question from uh, a dear, dear friends of ours who had adopted two boys who looked nothing like them. And people would ask, oh, are they adopted? And she would always ask, why do you ask? Those who were curious, kind of, I don't know. But every so often someone asked because they were thinking about adoption. They were struggling with infertility. And they had questions and they thought she might be a safe person to ask. And I guarantee you she was a safe person to ask. Because of the three people we allowed to walk with us, she was one of them. She's our boys' godmother. Why do you ask? Be caring, not curious. Number four, as people begin to share, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and even slower to suggest. We share our stories to be heard, don't we? 
It's a way of inviting others in in hopes of being truly seen and fully known and genuinely loved. By sharing our story, that is an invitation for you to step off the front porch and into the living room, so to speak. Maybe the front part of the living room, maybe not like the family room in the back of the house, but a little bit. We share our stories to be heard. And we're reluctant to share when we think you're only going to respond with more plithy platitudes and silver linings. If you're just going to suggest solutions and offering your unsolicited advice that isn't worth the two cents you claim it's worth. You see, like, people can tell when you are truly listening and absorbed by the story and when you are simply waiting to talk. And so that's why in our formation groups, uh, within the way, our spiritual formation journey uh, that a number of people have joined me on for three years, um, they break into smaller formation groups. We follow a very specific liturgy in formation group. And that includes uh, sharing what it is that's on your heart, whatever that weight is that you are carrying. Sharing that with the group. And then after you share, the group holds that in a minute of silence. And then the group prays for you. And then after they pray, the next person shares, and we go through it again. And you know what we don't do? We don't impose. It's not meant to be a time of critique and counsel, but a time of sharing. Now we modified it. You are able to invite counsel. I love the people in the first group of the way. They're helping making it even better. I gave them something, and I was like, please make it better. That was Janice's idea. I wanted their counsel. Can I ask for it? Yes, you can invite it, but we do not impose it. And what we are doing in that liturgy is intentionally practicing being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slower to suggest. Number five. Number five was Tim's. By the way, this whole list, this is, this is Pastor Rob and Pastor Tim and me. Um, I got to give a little bit of credit over here. This one's Tim's. It's a good one. I'm not saying it because this is the bad one. <laughs> Show up so you can follow up. Show up so you can follow up. Right? Creating a culture of vulnerability requires consistency of presence in each other's lives. Consistency of presence in each other's lives requires building trust and comfort and familiarity, and that takes time. And over time, the safer and more comfortable we feel, the more apt we are to share. But that requires us showing up. It requires showing up on Sunday morning, not for you, but for one another. This isn't about each of us as individuals. This is about us as a body, as a family. Show up on Sunday morning, but then show up during the week. Show up in your small group, show up in your formation group, show up in your Bible study. Whatever, that, that, whatever community is for you, show up during the week, but don't end there. Show up in the in-between times, the unscheduled times, sending a text, making a phone call, going out for coffee, sharing a meal, attending a, a meetup. But then don't forget to follow up. When someone shares their story, don't forget to follow up. That's why... Uh, every Sunday, we invite you to take a step of vulnerability, don't we? Pastor Rob comes up here, he, he makes a couple of jokes, he gets your attention back, and then he asks you to share a prayer request with us as pastors and elders. And every few weeks, I, I do my best to reach out to everyone that week who sent 
in a prayer request who took a step of vulnerability and shared their story. Because I want you to know that we, we actually read those. We actually pray over those. Right? We don't just say we pray. We stop and pray. And so when someone shares a story, you know, it's okay for you to make a little note in your calendar to follow up with them. Hey, thanks for sharing that story the other day. How you, how you doing? And you ask that question because you actually want to listen. And number six, receive what is shared in confidentiality. Receive what is shared in confidentiality. Let's protect the stories we share. But man, the only way we will ever create a culture of vulnerability is if we all play our part investing in each other, being a part of each other's lives and being patient with each other, pointing people to the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus by simply loving them like Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.